1: Be the most valuable business.
2: Making your money work harder. That's how you business differently. Intuit QuickBooks, banking services provided by Green Dot Bank, member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes are an APY. APY can change at any time. Do
1: we need a dramatic series about a pandemic when we're in a pandemic? I'm Alex Von Santos, and I write for Vox about culture and entertainment. And today, I'm your host for Vox Conversations. On paper, Station Eleven is a show I shouldn't like. It's a story adapted from a novel about a pandemic that kills everyone. But it spares, among others, a traveling troupe of Shakespeare performers. Shakespeare people! Is Kirsten here? You all really liked Romeo and Juliet last year, huh? I'm at my limit when it comes to pandemic anything. And if it's the end of the world, the last thing I want to do is spend it with theater kids. I do beseech you, give him leave to go. And yet, despite my reservations and at the urging of some of my coworkers and friends, I gave it a shot. One of them said, it's not really about the end of the world. And another told me, okay, so the theater kids are super annoying, but it's so good. I tuned in and I slowly realized that this show about how a pandemic ends the world was actually about how we rebuild it. There's a tendency in pop culture to depict survival tethered to the elimination of everyone else, like in the phrase, survival of the fittest, or in various zombie shows, or even something as casual as voting people off in Survivor. That's why the most striking thing about Station Eleven is how it portrays joy and love as necessary to existence. It argues that maybe survival is its own type of love, and maybe the connections we make with others are key, even if they are theater kids.
0: We're artists. Everything is dangerous.
1: In today's episode, I talked to Patrick Somerville, the showrunner of Station Eleven. Somerville has writing credits on The Leftovers, and was also the showrunner for the first season of the HBO Max original, Made for Love. All these shows imagine dystopias that feel uncomfortably close to the reality we're living in. We talk about that uncomfortable closeness, what it was like producing Station Eleven during the pandemic, and what he thinks about the end of the world. Patrick Somerville, thank you for coming on this show and speaking with me. Hi, Alex. Hi.
3: I'm so excited to talk. Let's talk.
1: Let's talk. Let's talk about everything. Station 11, a pandemic show shot during the pandemic, airing during what we're living through a pandemic. A little on the nose.
3: Yeah. (laughs) Um, can I add, conceived before the pandemic? Conceived
1: before the pandemic and based on a novel before the pandemic.
3: Which I actually think matters a lot too because we just happen to be, I think, a bunch of people making a show who never would have made a show about what was happening right now. You know what I mean? Right. And then we shot two episodes and boom, March of 2020 descended on us too. But we were kind of just, I don't know, pointed in the direction we were pointed and we just kept going. But I also hear what you're saying in your question, like, uh, Hey, (laughs) maybe don't make the really, really, really hard to feel story come out right when it's becoming clear that the pandemic is not ending.
1: Well, I mean, I wanted to ask you about that because it's just like, for me, please don't take any offense to this. I needed to be talked into watching the show.
3: Oh, I don't take a. I fa- I would have to have been, too. <laughs>
1: <laughs> My colleague, Emily, was just like, you have to watch a show, it's about the end of the world. I'm like, it's about the end of the world? Why, <laughs> Why would I want to watch the show about the end of the world when I can go outside and it feels like the end of the world? And so it took me a few months to get into it. Yeah. And be like, okay, I finally have enough space to watch this.
3: Yeah, I think that's a lot of people. I mean, I think even just hearing the sound of cash registers at a grocery store at the beginning of the first trailer— that we put out mm-hmm. was a trigger, and like of the many wild things about making a show that happened to hit so directly into our experience. Like, I don't think we know what our triggers are, even, mm-hmm. uh, and I don't think we know what feelings we've been feeling, even. So I don't blame you at all for saying uh, maybe not right now. <laughs> and I think that's I think that's kind of cool about the the streamer world too. I think there's a whole wave of people for whom Station Eleven was perfect right when it came, like exactly what they needed and wanted to feel. But I think there's a probably even bigger wave of people that staggered out, you know, along their own timelines and what they're going through, who I think hopefully will come to it. And when they do, realize pretty soon that it's just it's not a story about pain. You said it's a show about the end of the world. And I think that's fair, but it's also a show about the beginning of the world. And I think that's fair, too. And I think you kind of got to be in the right place to start it for either thing.
1: Right now, well, I think what you were saying earlier, you started the show, you started filming the shows in production, and then it happened. Like, I still can't call it the pandemic, but like, that happened, right? Mm -hmm. And I guess for you, you can't just stop and be like, okay, well, like, (laughs) if you're making a show, how did you, I guess keep in mind, like, threading the needle, right? Because you don't want to be putting out a show that kind of feels exploitative. I don't know. For me, I would think that there would be some kind of needle threading and some kind of calculus happening while you're making the show.
3: Well, I always felt okay, actually, because even when the idea of a pandemic was fictional, Mm -hmm. the whole concept, I think, at the start and our early conversations were like, what if this genre, the post-apocalyptic genre, as compelling as it seems to have been to modern audiences over the last few decades, what if nobody's done the right version of it yet? And that's what's so awesome about Emily's novel is sort of, yeah, the world ended, but life goes on. (laughs) And what Mm -hmm. if we skip the horrific part and go to the more complicated part, which actually ends up feeling a lot like what, like a Tuesday, in 2022 feels like to me which is sort of like everything's fucked and nothing is. Yeah. Now how how do I get through today? Mm-hmm. That's more like how the people in your 20 are living. So I wasn't worried actually. I was worried about my family. <laughs> I was worried about the world, but we we did stop too. We made episodes 1 and 3 mm-hmm. and we continued editing remotely. Our whole industry was learning how to do that more efficiently. And the world was very confusing we we waited almost 6 months and we moved from Chicago to Toronto and started rebuilding a crew because Canada had lower levels dramatically lower levels and it felt like the only way to safely resume production was to resume production in Ontario that was a hard choice mm-hmm. but we didn't get up and running again until almost a year later in February 2021
1: i want to ask you how did i guess the real-life stuff that was happening. You were mentioning that you had to, like, deal with, I guess. <laughs> I'm trying to put it politely, what was happening in, I guess, 2020. And-
3: Don't put it politely. <laughs> Don't put it politely. Put it, say what you mean. I like it. It was really messy time. It was really confusing.
1: I feel like messy and confusing is very polite for what was happening.
3: Fucked up really fucked up
1: fucked up it was super fucked up and it was just like how is that all informing what you were making on the show was any of it informing what you were making on the show was it connected was it subconscious like do you look back at footage now and you're just like oh yeah that was like that one day i felt like really really mad at the world at what was happening
3: yeah you know it's dangerous going back and trying to connect those dots because it's all a little bit Mysterious, but I can see certainly like the idea of the end of episode nine, for example, Mm -hmm. was just an idea. It was a way nine could be amidst like three other ways nine could be. I'm talking about a set piece of a bunch of babies getting born. And I think the idea of a whole shitload of babies being born in a very difficult space. Wait, for, um,
1: let's set this up a little bit more. (laughs) (laughs) Spoilers! I mean, okay, so to help make it clear for those of you who haven't seen the show, Kirsten and Jeevan come together basically by accident at the start of the pandemic. Kirsten's a young child actress, Jeevan's a sort of aimless young adult, and they're cooped up together in an emergency survival situation for several months. Then they get separated.
3: There's a huge mystery through the whole show. How did Jeevan and Kirsten get separated? And we don't answer that until all the way at the end in episode nine.
1: Yeah, (laughs) and he comes to this, I guess, department store slash superstore, and it is a midwife in a doctor slash birthing center in the middle of like an apocalypse.
0: These women are heroes. We lost close to 9 billion last year. Next week, we get 15 or 16 post pandemic babies back. It's a fucking time bomb of joy. And I need your help. Yeah, I need another doctor.
1: And it's like this amazing, like you're just like, oh my gosh, that's what happened. He's hanging out with all these women. And pregnant people that were basically like, oh, this is the end of the world. We're going to do something. There's a doctor at the center of it. She's just like, getting these babies born is the most important thing right now.
3: Yeah. And I think in that time of writing, I'm a dad and I've witnessed three births. And I've been there, you know, in the room for all of them and different degrees of danger and safety. But one of the first thing you realize when watching your wife give birth is the stakes are actually life and death like it's pretty hard to go through that and not actually have a moment and think oh my god my wife could die right now mm-hmm. and it's not just her there's a baby too but just for a dad helplessly watching like it doesn't matter what i think it doesn't matter what i feel this is happening and it still matters you know that i'm present and i think that summer Everything inside of me wanted to be like, this isn't happening. This isn't happening. I don't want to think about this, but mm-hmm. I had to, cause I was, I guess, in charge of a giant thing, a show and a bunch of people's livelihoods, but also we have to, you know, like mm-hmm. we can't look away because that's dangerous too. And that the feeling of childbirth from the, the dad's point of view really encapsulated that to me, like you want to look away and you're not allowed. Sometimes you're not allowed, and it forces you into, into the now in a really intense way. And that was really appealing in that very, as we said, fucked up summer, to be telling a story that forced you to look at the thing in the eye. Mm-hmm. Just like when Mackenzie in 107 has to look at the thing that happened. And this is another episode when someone who's been avoiding processing something for a long time, finally goes back and starts processing it and finds like a bunch of delightful things as well as a bunch of scary things. The (laughs) show just again and again, I think in those later episodes is about reckoning with what's happening, like not pretending what's happening isn't happening. Since we talked about
1: Jeevan and (laughs) and Kirsten, um, one of the things that I am so mad at you about and so... (laughs) (laughs) Don't be mad. Come on. There's this huge emphasis in the show on whether these characters will find each other again. And you mentioned in an interview, you said people don't want twists. People want to be told and told and told what's going to happen. And finally, it's going to happen.
3: Yeah. People really love twists when they are warned eight times that they're coming, you know, like <laughs> yeah. in subtle ways. But I think there's yeah. different kinds of audiences too. You know, like you have the people who watch who wanna be able to go dot dot dot, I see the math, I see it's about to happen, oh, I'm right. Right. But then there's people who maybe subconsciously noticed those things but didn't see it coming. But I think sometimes twists feel super unfair because they're not earned mm-hmm. and they're not set up, but it's a weird little stealth art because you give yourself away mm-hmm. if you set up your coming twists too much. Mm-hmm. You want people to know it's coming and not know it's coming at the same time, I guess.
1: So speaking of the twist and this whole like emphasis on reunion and like people coming back. So Spoiler alert, don't listen.
3: We're deep (laughs) in spoiler territory (laughs) here. This is is a post-show recap at at this point. Uh, I know, (laughs) but
1: that the whole last episode where they come back to each other had me yelling. I was like, fuck you, Station Eleven, if you do not let these two people come back and see each other after these 20 years. Because I don't know if they need it as much as I need it after watching this whole entire show through a pandemic where it's like, I don't think I've ever been lonelier. And I'm like... Oh my gosh, everyone was right. This was actually a show that made me feel better because it's all about people coming back into each other's lives, right? And so I want to ask you, was that your intention from the beginning? And did you know, like, during a pandemic where it's like we couldn't see anyone, we were so freaking lonely, that it was going to be like, oh, this is the kapow moment. Like I was screaming. I was like, turn around, Kirsten, turn around. He's right there. Hmm. I go walk by the plants, hmm. go into the med bay. She did. And then she did, <laughs> didn't she? <laughs> she heard you. And you guys teased me for the entire, like, I was like, oh my gosh, he left, he left, he left, he left. And I was just in shambles, complete shambles. I was just like, I need this more than they need this.
3: I needed it. Trust me. <laughs> I needed it more than anyone. But to answer your question, We were in fact planning to end the series on the hug always from the beginning, from way back months and months and months before COVID-19. That was always the idea. Two separated people, we earn a reunion. It's gonna make big feelings. And I think the only thing that changed was when we got into the nuances, I think of episode 10. So like the beat where they almost see each other Mm -hmm. and Jeevan Leaves ostensibly, that was added later And as a storyteller, I never would add a beat like that unless I knew they were going to reunite, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But we had to make it plausible, or we had to make your theory watching be plausible that they are not going to see each other, just to build that anxiety through the second half of the episode. But. That would have been a dirty trick if that was it for them. <laughs> I wouldn't have. Hugs. I'm always pitching hugs. I was pitching <laughs> hugs like for my first TV job, and I just want characters to hug, but you got to earn it.
1: We're going to take a quick break, but when we're back, that long hug that happens at the end of Station Eleven got me thinking about hugs in general, especially how important they are in a pandemic when we're not supposed to.
2: Support for The Gray Area comes from Shopify. Imagine an action movie where the hero has to sell 1,000 Barbara Streisand t-shirts in 72 hours to save a major American city. Save the city from what, exactly? That's for audiences to decide. But how would they do it? They've used Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform flexible enough to help your business sell at every stage of growth. Whether you're the main character in a tentpole action movie or the real life CEO of a multinational company. No matter what you're making, Shopify can help you sell it. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person point of sale system. Shopify offers the flexibility to support your operation. They also offer something called Shopify Magic, an AI-powered helper created to help you stress less and sell more. Try it for yourself. You can sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash You can go to shopify.com slash now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash
0: Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.
1: Do you know what someone told me the other day? They were like, Alex, I don't think you're open
3: because you don't hug with two arms.
1: And I was just like, what's that mean? Does
3: that mean you bro hug? I mean, do you do you slap back? On your hug,
1: it's a one-armed reach. I don't do the two-arm. Yeah, unless it's like a parent or like a brother.
3: Well, you're selective with your hugs. Yeah, like you do big ones, but just very special people.
1: Right, and as as a hug connoisseur, are you a two-arm hugger or are you a one-arm hugger?
3: Depends on the person. <laughs> <laughs> but I think you don't want to lie with your hug. Right. On a stranger you just met and had kind of like a tepid. I kind of like you vibe with, and then you're saying goodbye. You don't want to do a big barrel (laughs) chested, I love you hug to that person because then you're a liar walking away. Yeah. But I'll do big hugs whenever it's a person who makes me feel the feeling of the big hug. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Pandemic really fucked up hugs for us. Yeah. Forget about handshakes. Hugs are a risk. Like I think there's something so cool about how valuable they are now that like you literally are taking a a small risk when you bring someone close to you and and hold them for a second Mm -hmm. but we need it right like we need that so you can't be careful all the time i guess
1: yeah pandemic
3: hugs still give them
1: (laughs) (laughs) but don't you think that like you've kind of in a way won? you weeded out all the people with the fake hugs now, because you're just like, well, I don't need to hug you anymore, because you can be much more selective and much more thoughtful with your hugs.
3: Oh, for sure. You can definitely leave any interaction with no hug and call it a virus issue. <laughs> you know who really, really, really fucking creeped me out? It was like 2010 to 2015. I don't know. Like, dudes who would be standing like in the middle of downtown Chicago with a sign that says like free hugs. Oh yeah. Do you remember this? There was like a little moment when people were saying free hugs, definitely like creepy, definitely unearned hug and definitely transactional in a way that hugs shouldn't be. I really did not like those people.
1: Hugs aren't transactional is the whole reason why the Jeevan and Kirsten hug matter so much, right?
3: Yeah. That's a real hug.
1: And you're just like you could smell how bad they smelled like (laughs) (laughs) they didn't care yeah at that point it's just like everyone smells like what patchouli and probably a lot of bo and it's just like you don't have the same body wash but it's like who cares because you've seen your friend no problem your friend is back yeah bring it home The actors who played Kirsten and Jeevan, Mackenzie Davis and Himesh Patel, they had this delicate, pivotal moment that they needed to pull off.
3: It's just a marvel watching Mackenzie and Himesh also in the kind of micro beats Mm -hmm. before the hug when they're recognizing each other. There's like 10 steps that each of them are playing because they have to get to it's you, it's you. before The Hog, but there's no words. Mm -hmm. I tried to script words and they told me that I was not allowed to script words. (laughs) They were like, go away. And they were right. They were right. And so, Mm
1: -hmm.
3: as defensive as I may get as a writer, when I hear the phrase, words don't matter, because they do a lot, Mm -hmm. especially in TV, but in that scene, they didn't. And the actors just sort of put on a a demonstration of why that's true.
1: Mm -hmm. And To set this up for people who haven't watched yet, I think what's kind of pivotal in that is that there's a child actress, and it's just like she's encapsulating all of that like into that one moment. And for a mesh, it's again, it's like 20 years of what's been happening in Station 11, and he's probably looking at like, yes, Mackenzie's standing in front of me, but there was also like, this kid I was acting next to and taking care of, and I just...
3: She's a woman now. Yeah. Like, she's grown. It's not just she's tall. (laughs) It's that she's alive, and it's also that she's okay, and it's also, like, she's substantial. She's an adult now, like me. Yeah, I think there's more steps for him because, again, for people who haven't watched the show, (laughs) Matilda Lawler is playing an eight-year-old in episode one Mm -hmm. to Jeevan's 29-year-old, I think. And then now we're 20 years later, so they're both grown-ups. Kirsten can recognize Jeevan.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: He's still Jeevan. He's gray, he's got longer hair, but it's him. She knows that face. Yeah, He's got to make a bigger leap for sure to map the child onto the grown-up.
1: And his first interaction with her is just also the same kind of stare, right? And it's just kind of like a callback to them seeing each other in a way and like the vibe is good even <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> you can tell when someone has good vibes and they look at each other and they were just like yes this is a person that matters to me i don't know why i don't know how
3: sometimes that happens i just trust this person yeah i just feel safe around this person and that is kind of what the whole show is based on is mm-hmm. the lucky crossing of two strangers at the top of episode one on the worst day that has ever happened and like How valuable is that when you find a person that you just feel safe around? Mm -hmm. And then it stays true. And do you think that
1: Jeevan felt safe around Kirsten? She's like eight. (laughs) Do you think it was as much about him feeling safe around her as it was about her feeling safe around him?
3: I think Jeevan felt good when he had a job. Mm -hmm. And it clarified something for him to be with Kirsten. He needs to look after someone else, someone's well-being. And I think he's never, up to that point in his life, had to care about someone other than himself. Mm -hmm. And I think it is exactly what he needed. I don't think he felt great about it in episode one, Mm -hmm. but I think he found some new layers of himself over the course of that walk across Chicago that saved himself, too. You know, it didn't just save her.
1: The walk across Chicago with all those shopping carts— full of all that junk
3: food. We had PAs actually bungeeing six full shopping carts together in our production office and trying to push them through the snow to actually see, is this possible? (laughs) (laughs) I have a video somewhere on my phone. I want to talk about
1: Arthur in a little bit.
3: Let's do it.
2: Young simpering dame, whose face between her forks presages snow,
1: He's played by Gail Garcia Bernal, who's arguably one of the bigger names in the cast. So Arthur is kind of like the biggest character, the summation of all the stories. He's the center of the entire story, basically.
3: He's the person everybody else knows.
1: Yeah, but as a person, his role is very minimal, I think, compared to the other characters. And I think the whole idea of just like this one person connecting all these different people And actually, in an indirect way, saving them is kind of beautiful.
3: To me, that just speaks to the elegance of Emily St. John Mandel's novel Mm -hmm. also, which doesn't force it. It doesn't force a conspiracy. It doesn't force a union of people whose mission it is to go save anything. It just happens to be a cluster of humans who all knew this one particularly magnetic one Mm -hmm. and who was kind at times and selfish at other times, but they all remember him. Mm -hmm. And I think the show is so much about remembering. Movie stars have a leg up on us in terms of being memorable as humans. Mm -hmm. If you ever just encounter a movie star have a brief exchange with them, there's a power there. There's a power and not just charisma, but like something more. It feels like magic. I think Holding on to Arthur, who is sort of the last person who died the normal way on Earth. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Holding on to Arthur as a way for all of them to sort of hold on to something from before that felt good to them. And yet, in different ways, Arthur brought people together, Mm -hmm. even though he wasn't intending to all the time.
1: There's almost a way of like, I found myself screaming at the screen at my little computer. Which is probably not the way you wanted me to watch it. But
3: tell me you did not watch the show on (laughs) a little computer. Don't say that.
1: (laughs) Half on a computer, half on the living room TV. But like, I was yelling at the screen and I was just like, just say you know Arthur. Almost like how you talk to a bouncer. It's just like, oh, I know Arthur. In saying his name or being like, I knew him, it unlocks something in these people. Like, it's just like when Kirsten says it to Elizabeth
0: Did Tyler give you that? No, Arthur did. I was young Goneril in King Lear. We met backstage.
1: But I also think that it resonates with like a human experience of just like how people are kind of like keys to unlocking each other, right? Once they know each other, once they're just like, oh, you know, Arthur. You see it in their faces, like how much he meant to me, how much he meant to you. We have a connection now. And it's, there's something sort of beautiful in it.
3: You just spelled out, like, if we just found out we both went to Madison, to Wisconsin (laughs) right now, and then we both kept climbing, we were like, oh my God, we had the same professor. Yeah. And we didn't have strong feelings about it. That would be kind of interesting connection. Mm -hmm. But that's the kind of thing that happens when you're small talking. Yeah. But in the show, it's not just, I knew Arthur. It's, I loved Arthur, or Arthur loved me. Mm -hmm. And there's something in that where it's like, you gravitate toward the people who gravitated to Arthur. Like, if Arthur loved this person, then almost, I know I can be friends with them. There's like a love element that's an incredibly important thing that gets said at the end of 10 during the Hamlet, that we miss him, we're mourning him, but we all loved him. And the loss of him is kind of what we share in common. That's maybe at the heart of your question, too. Mm -hmm. It's not just that we used to know him. It's like we all miss him. He's gone, but we are still here. What do we do now? We keep going forward.
1: Yeah. And it's like also loving him means it's like a bridge of trust to someone else, right? Right. Like you have to see this moment and it's just like everything just clicks. And it's such like a beautiful little moment of TV. Mm Mm-hmm. I'm going to zoom out a little bit. Okay. So, I want to ask you, while your shows are very much about the end of the world, they're also about survival, and I think we got at this earlier, when we were talking about like, this isn't a show about the end of the world, it's about rebuilding. What is it about survival stories? Because it's not just Station Eleven, I mean, you also worked on The Leftovers, Made for Love is also…
3: Survivor's Tale.
1: Absolutely a survivor story, but in probably a smaller scope. It's like a personal survival story. What is it about survival stories that interests you?
3: I don't know. It's very much not even conscious, really. And it's a good question because the first novel I wrote was about an orphan. And also, he was definitely a survivor. I'm not an orphan. I mean, I think the truthful answer is bound up in what we survived when we were little kids in our homes where we grew up in. Mm -hmm. I think that I'm drawn to stories of people who are not necessarily equipped to deal with how dangerous the world is too soon and nevertheless have to figure out a way to make it through. Childhood is bound up in this. Like It sucks to know that no child is equipped to deal with what we've built for them. Mm -hmm. And there's a moment when you're a kid when you still don't know. And then there's a moment when your heart knows and you're almost in survival mode too early Mm -hmm. and then there's a moment when you know consciously like this is a really very dangerous world that we've made (laughs) and so we're all sort of i think surviving it simultaneously Mm -hmm. too maybe that's the other thing like i like emily in her novel i don't differentiate that much between the before and the after you know like the apocalypse not to sound grim but the apocalypse is happening kind of because it's the hyper modern post-capitalist moment of incredible inequality and suffering for most people Mm -hmm. and so i think like it just i'm drawn to stories that feel true and i guess right now stories that feel true are stories about people who are just surviving or to bring it back to station 11 not just surviving but living Mm -hmm. and surviving finding joy and delight and reasons for surviving while surviving
1: I think what's kind of great with what you do is this idea of survival, like naturally my mind probably is thinking more along the lines of, well, yeah, it's something rugged or something bloody, it's grisly. This is something that tough people, it's very tough to survive. But it's also like your shows never and especially station eleven, it's not that binary. You know what I mean? Like joy and love are very much about survival and as vital to survival as all the other stuff, all the dangerous, Lee, learning how to kill people stuff, right? Like in the apocalypse.
3: Honestly, I think like alpha masculinity is not useful Yeah. in terms of the survival I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. And I think like violence is not useful, nor is strength per se. I think emotional intelligence, I think the ability to tolerate emotions and keep going, the ability to bear weight and shield emotional danger from those less powerful than you. Those are the qualities, I think, that are going to add up to survival for people. Mm -hmm. Not whether or not you can knock someone out (laughs) (laughs) or shoot someone with a gun, honestly. like There's a paradox because I won't survive if someone shoots me in the head with a gun. But I think long-term emotional strength is what I'm interested in if we're talking about survival.
1: Yeah. And- like, the whole idea of, like, we always think of it as something hard. And it's just, like, it doesn't have to be. Love is survival. Joy is survival. And it's also art. Mm-hmm. And the interpretation of art is also its own way of surviving through this.
3: Well, community. Yeah. To me, community trumps art. Art's just a thing that happens when people are together. Right. It is. It's just how we solve problems and then someone gets really good at it whatever the problem solved was. And it's just a way of communicating in a group. Mm -hmm. We probably scared many potential listeners off in this conversation already, (laughs) but I would say there's a thousand pretentious reasons that would also make me not turn on Station 11. Shakespeare, art, even just saying like hope, you know, right now it's hard to even hear that and buy it. Mm -hmm. But I would say that those are all the positive other outcomes of what the story is really about. And the story is really about Strangers meeting each other and holding on for dear life, new communities getting built, and the surprise of how powerful us together can be, even if there's a rising tide that seems like it's too big that's going to destroy everyone. Like people holding on to each other wins, actually. Mm -hmm. I think that. But the problem is, we often don't remember that. I think in the times when we most need to hold on to each other.
1: Well, I mean, isn't that because a lot of us, (laughs) my therapist will tell you, a lot of us are afraid to be vulnerable. Maybe in the U.S. especially. Mm -hmm. Like, we don't cherish being soft. We don't value opening up and being like, well, this hurts, or- I'm not okay. Yeah, I think we're getting better at it. But I also think that as a value, we do not place value on, I want to be vulnerable. I want to love people and be hopeful.
3: Who wants to be vulnerable? (laughs) <laughs> you know, I mean, I don't hug people. I, I was I was gonna make a joke about the hugs, but I I'll make a serious point. Yesterday, some dude went to an elementary school and shot twenty kids. That happened, and so the case for being vulnerable is not great right now, based on the world that we live in. Kids in elementary school are inherently vulnerable, and look what happens—they're a target. So I think like. There's bravery in being vulnerable and choosing it, but there's danger in it too. Like I get why you don't do a full hug. <laughs> I, mean, I I <laughs> truly do. It's it's not safe. Yeah. But I do think that it's a better way forward than anything else we've come up with.
1: Well, it also goes back to you. I think you were saying that like as a kid when the world starts coming together and you start puzzling out and you start figuring out like that it's not perfect and this world that's been built for you is kind of not a nice place. You put up your defenses. And then you slowly put brick by brick. till you're like, this can't hurt me anymore, right?
3: Yeah. But then what are you at that point? That's what's scary. I would say it's not even burnt or hurt. It's traumatized. I grew up in a house where it wasn't safe to show what your emotional life was, because it was just dangerous. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's a pretty accurate Recreation of what our world's like right now, too. So I don't know. I i think the hug at the end of station 11 had to feel earned. It had to feel like not fake. It had to not pretend that the dangers of the world weren't there. We did a, a lot of work to not exploit pain, but also not pretend it wasn't there just to get to one fucking hug. <laughs> if 10 hours, 10 hours of work to get to one hug that felt real. Yeah. That's a good way to talk about station 11.
1: That is. That should be the tagline. Yeah, no one's going to watch it. <laughs> <laughs> but it's also, I think part of that is Station Eleven ends on a very hopeful note. And it's, I will see you again. And it's just like, there's no guarantee, obviously, because that world is effing dangerous and there's all kinds of, of things that could happen. But it's like this promise, I will make time for you. I will find you again.
3: That's it. Yeah, I think in the subtext at the end of our show, everyone knows that saying I will find you again, has an asterisk, unless I die on the side of the road <laughs> trying to, you know? Like everyone knows that. Yeah. But I think maybe like in a regular adventure story, like I'm thinking of Daniel Day-Lewis in Last of the Mohicans be like, I will find you. Mm-hmm. You know he's going to. It's a more one-to-one and like, I think none of our characters are screaming it or stating it. They're sort of saying it with love and hope. I hope I'll find you again.
1: We're going to take one last short break, but when we come back, what is it about facing your biggest fears that Patrick Somerville is so drawn to? I want to ask you a little bit. I think we touched on it earlier about forcing people to think about things they don't want to, but kind of have to. Again, going back to our conversation about children, about like not really wanting to, but kind of have to. Mm -hmm. And especially like the world we're living in today. Do you think that's part of what your overarching? I don't want to say goal is, but kind of like what you want to portray of like here are some people having to deal with things that they don't want to, but have to.
3: I take issue slightly with the word forcing because it's never going to work if you get forced to do anything. Mm -hmm. If you get forced to go to therapy, guess what? Therapy's not going to work. I think a lot of it is about choosing, like that thing building up in you when you know, oh, here's an unacknowledged dark room in my heart that I don't go to because I can't right now some moment comes when you're like, I have to, I need to open that door to go forward. I'm stuck in my life and my personality and my emotions. I need to open that door and look at it. I like those moments when people are realizing, okay, I got to go in there, in that haunted house. I got to go to that one door and I need to open it and stand and look at it, which always is the hardest part of these things, is opening the door and looking. It's not actually usually what you see. It's getting yourself to go there and open it and stand the line and look at it. I'm speaking in like cryptic metaphors, but do you know what I mean? It's the moments when people realize they have to do a reckoning with themselves. And the pandemic so did this to us, I think, everyone at the same time.
1: Yeah. I mean, during the pandemic, when it's just you by yourself, Like, I don't think we've ever been so alone. And so I think that feels like kind of the time that you would realize those things, right?
3: Yeah, and I was saying to my friend, as awful as all of this feels, this is the optimist in me, but tell me if you buy this.
1: I mean, I do think that it is funny that you call yourself an optimist when you're just like the king of dystopian TV, but... Oh my God, I'm the most optimistic (laughs) person
3: you've ever met. I always think things are gonna work out. (laughs) Don't call me the king of dystopian TV. I'm just reflecting what it seems like out there, but everyone always gets away in a happy ending and everything I make, I think the people that we care about, but I think we learn the tools we need to deal with the challenges that are coming in the dark times of right now. I don't think we know that that's what's happening, but I think, you know, the decade between 2020 and 2030 is going to be informed just as much by the new resources and creativity that come out of people who suffered through the pandemic as white nationalism or fascism or authoritarian governments are going to define who we are. I think that we learned important lessons inside of that hard time, and I think that we're going to use them. Mm -hmm. I just don't know what that looks like yet, but I think it's important.
1: You mentioned this, but I also feel like in the pandemic, we learned more about inequality and what that whole idea of essential workers, is, right? Mm-hmm. What is essential working? Is it the person who's delivering you food so that you can stay inside and be safe and risking their life mm-hmm. and their health for you? Or is it the person that's the CEO that's making a bajillion dollars? Like, Who's more essential to your day-to-day survival?
3: There was something about that moment every time you looked into the eyes of someone who was dropping off groceries, for you, I don't, I have three kids. And so our solve to groceries was like a delivery system as a lot of people's, it's always a moment, especially in those early months, like when he or she would come up and like drop them there and masked Mm -hmm. moment of eye contact too, which is, yeah, just like, there's a reckoning inside of every one of those moments. Like, where are you going? now and why are you the one who's delivering it to my door yeah as opposed to vice versa
1: yeah like even like me going to the grocery store and someone checking me out at the which happens in station 11 but it's like someone at the grocery store checking everyone out right like that person is in contact with who knows how many people per day of the pandemic and putting your health at risk so that i can have food
3: <laughs> but also so so they can have money to be safe, too. Right. There's another layer there, which is scary, about the way our world's built.
1: Yeah. I mean, I want to ask you also, like, we've kind of danced around this. What's it like to create dystopian fiction in a world where that feels like a dystopia that we're living in
3: day-to-day? Is it fictional even more? No, it just, it feels honest. It feels honest to me, because I think... The thing I like most is alting the world slightly to kind of defamiliarize the normal, I guess in maniac, it wasn't even slightly, it's an alt version of our world. But the the reason I'm drawn to that is that our world that looks normal is not. And in fact, there's like cogs and wheels and mechanisms and invisible machines behind every structure and system and life and. Some people know about them. Some people know about some of them. Some people don't know about any of them, but we're inside a machine. And I think anything to kind of like jolt the audience for a second and wake them up. For me, it just feels like a clear space to tell a human story. That's not pretending that we're not inside of a-, a machine, but there's one way to do it. Like I'm really drawn also though, to a kind of grounded realism out-the-door realism, out-the-window realism, one of my writers called it. like It's just our world. Mm -hmm. And all the things I just said aren't like exploded out in uh, gigantic neon colors, but rather internalized and grounded in the storytelling. So what if you take those ideas and put them into a super grounded story? I think it probably gets better. I don't know if I was mature enough emotionally or as a thinker in my 20s and 30s to get how to do that Mm -hmm. without doing it loudly. See, I'm just I'm just on my, on my journey, too, to being a grown-up, I think, too. And like, <laughs> just because I have done these kinds of things so far doesn't mean that's where my heart's at, too. I'm just, that's what I look forward to in the coming decades. just the same kind of take, but building it more into different kinds of super accessible stories that don't have the end of the world in them.
1: And my last question to you, how do you think the end of the world happens, and what's your plan? Do you have a plan?
3: My plan is just to not run, actually. Really? Yeah. Because I think the end of the world is happening for everyone. And what I mean by that is like, you're going to die. And I think it's okay to actually hold that for a second and think about that. And, you know, if you have a family and have kids too, where are you going to run to? You're going to be together is my plan. Wherever I am, uh, be with my family. Mm-hmm. And I don't think the world's gonna end. I think that's the easy fantasy. Mm-hmm. I think the world's gonna keep going like this. And then the question is, what are you gonna do? What risks are you gonna take to try and make it better? Oh my God, that was like such a crazy moment to end on. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Patrick, thank you so much for speaking with me. And we got to talk about hugs optimism hope and the end of the world
3: yeah it was great and also the hug thing like i don't blame you for the half hug i don't i get it And you gotta be choosy about your hugs
1: when you get a hug from me it'll mean something
3: okay whoever is
1: listening out there and if i ever see you in person and we vibe i will give you a hug and it'll be an
3: earned hug wait we already vibed if, it, if we are <laughs> hugging you're not going to be able to do your half hug because i'm going to be Two arms squeeze (laughs) hugging you for making it happen.
1: I will be smothered. It'll be a smothering (laughs) hug. I promise. Thank you so much.
3: Thanks for having me.
1: Fox Conversations is produced by Eric Janikas. Our editor is Amy Drozdovska. Patrick Boyd mixed and mastered this episode. Our theme music was dreamed up by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. And Amber Hall is the deputy editorial director of Vox Talk. If you like the show, let us know. Room for improvement? We want to hear that too. We're curious to know what you think, what you want more of, what we can improve. And if you have ideas for future guests or topics, send us your thoughts at. Vox Conversations at Vox.com. And hey, if you did like this episode, share it with your friends and please rate and review. And join us next week for a brand new episode of Vox Conversations.